turn your Bibles to Pew Bible, page 29, where we see our scripture passage for the sermon this morning, Genesis 21, the first 21 verses. Genesis chapter 21, the first 21 verses, Pew Bible, page 29. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him, as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly, because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. So a couple was expecting their first child, and the wife was given a test that would reveal the baby's sex. So the doctor asked the mother-to-be if she wanted to be called with the news. And she said, uh, just mail it. My husband and I want to share this moment together. So a few days later, an envelope from the doctor arrived. The couple made a special evening of it. They dressed up. They went out to dinner at their favorite restaurant. And there, after the meal was finished, they opened the letter. And it was the doctor's bill. <laughs> you see, we've all faced disappointment uh, of unfulfilled expectations. And sometimes it's even a reason people drift from the Lord. They have this idea of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what they'll gain from it, and um, it never comes about. They come to Christ because they heard that he could solve their problems, that he could bring them wealth, health, 
um, heard the Christian life would give them peace, but they still have inner conflicts. I mean, isn't the Christian life supposed to be one of great joy? Yes, it is. There's no greater joy than knowing Jesus Christ. There's no greater joy than being assured that your sins are no longer held against you. And that one day when you die, you will go to be in the presence of the Lord. And even in the future, you will be resurrected and live forever with him. There's great joy when God answers prayers. Or when he uses you to lead a person to Christ. But while the Christian life results in great joy, the path that joy often leads us through great pain. And uh, that's what our passage is about this morning. If we look at the story of Abraham as a journey of his faith, um, also pointing us to Jesus Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, uh, we'll find that today's story, today's passage about the birth of Isaac and the loss of Ishmael uh, expressed to us those two contrasting but often coinciding realities of the life of faith, one of great joy and one of great suffering, loss, pain. So our theme this morning is in the giving of a son, we see that the life of faith brings great joy. In the taking of a son, we see that the life of faith also brings great pain. We have three points this morning. The first is heir to the promise, where we read about the birth of Isaac. Uh, The second is the household conflict. Uh, where we see the uh, interchange that goes on between Sarah seeing Ishmael mocking Isaac and what she tells Abraham to do in response to that. And then the last one is Hagar and Ishmael are exiled. So let's look at that first point, heir to the promise. This covers verses 1 through 7. And it's largely why we sang the song, God the Father, before the sermon. Many of you are probably thinking, is there a surprise baptism this morning? Well, this is the promise that we baptize our children on. It's the same promise that God gave to Abraham that you would have a son and you would circumcise him on the eighth day. It's the same promise that we present our children to the Lord in baptism. So that's why that song was sung. So Abraham's journey of faith has included many great promises and many great tests. The one promise that has probably been the most severely tested has been that he would become a great nation. Uh, To become anything, you must have descendants. Therefore, what we witness in these first seven verses are the climax of the Abraham narrative. Here we read a relatively brief and straightforward presentation of this momentous event. Back in chapter 18, verse 14, God said to Abraham, I'll return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Therefore, we read at the beginning of chapter 21... The Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. But behind this statement is the acknowledgement that God had always planned on the child being born when Abraham and Sarah were old. You've got to ask yourselves, why did God plan to wait until Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was in her 90s before this child came into the world? Why was that God's providence? Why was that God's sovereignty? Well, it was not only to test Abraham's faith, but in order to clearly demonstrate that this child is not a child of natural means. This child is a divine gift, 
miraculously given through God's powerful intervention and provision. 100 years old, and you're dead. I'm thinking to myself, I'm not even sure how 31 years old and I'm going to be having these kids is going to go. Okay? And sometimes I think I'm too young because I'm like, I don't have enough lived experience to be able to teach my 14-year-old sons. And sometimes they come and ask me, it's like, hey, man, I'm trying to figure this out just like you. Abraham, though, he's 100 years old. Why? In order to show that this is God's work, not man's work. And so, one of the applications we have from acknowledging this is that the joy of the life of faith comes in receiving that which only God can do. The joy of the life of faith comes in receiving that which we know only God can do. The joy that Abraham and Sarah are experiencing in this moment, having now received the child of the promise, the heir of the, of the promise, is that this is not something they did. This is all of God. This is a miracle. And, and part of their joy comes from an acknowledgement that God keeps his promises. And God keeps his promises. God promised Abraham would have a son. And even though both Abraham and Sarah are long beyond the regular time to have children, Sarah gets pregnant and gives birth to Isaac. This son is only the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise of becoming a great nation, which will be blessed to be a blessing to the world. God's covenant promises can be seen from the garden to the flood to Mount Sinai to the kingdom and throne of David all the way to the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ is the seed of Abraham, the ultimate fulfillment of the blessings to the nations, the son of David, the true Israel, the offspring of the woman who crushed the serpent's head. And Jesus has promised he will be with us to the very end of the age, that those who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life, that he will lose none of us but present us to his Father on the last day. He has promised us life abundant, that the promised Holy Spirit will be with us. And finally, that he will come again and bring us with him into the new heavens and new earth. So I have a question for you then. If God can keep his promise to two senior citizens, that they will have a child. And if all of God's promises find their yes and their amen in Christ, how then shall we live? Well, Kent Hughes puts it this way. You and I can and must Trust every syllable of God's word. This is the way every Christian is meant to live in deepest trust in all of God's word, just as Jesus lived. God keeps his promises. Well, there's also joy in knowing that what God promises, he does in his time. I want you to know something. For the moment God came to Abraham and gave him the promise that he would be a great nation. To the moment that Abraham and, I, and, and Sarah had Isaac, their son. You know how long that was? 25 years. 
a quarter of a century, 25 years, Abraham had that promise. And it didn't come to fulfillment until 25 years later. You see, many of us may have lost hope, may have felt that God had forgotten us. I'm sure Abraham felt that way. In fact, through that whole time and testing of his faith, they tried to provide God with a little bit of help, a little bit of assistance. They stumbled, they fell. 25 years. Grinnell puts it this way, God's promises are dated, but with a mysterious character. And for want of skill in God's chronology, we are prone to think God forgets us, when indeed we forget ourselves in being so bold to set, a, to set God a time of our own, and in being angry that he comes not just then to us. Or what's he saying there? He's saying... We think that God forgets us, but in fact, we forget God if we think that we can demand that God bring about his promises in our life when we demand, when we so choose, accordance with our timing. Well, God's timing is not our timing. He is the sovereign one. He is the providential one. We are the ones called to be patient and wait on the Lord. How many of you have been clinging to a promise of God. Maybe 25 years, just like Abraham. Continuously praying, going through ups and downs, going through frustrations and difficulties about this, but continuing to cling to that because you know that God answers. God keeps his promises in Jesus Christ. All the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus. I'm going to cling to this. I'm not giving this up. I'm going to continue to pray for this. Well, let me tell you, if it has not come about yet, do not give up. Because God keeps his promises. And God brings his promises to fruition, to fulfillment in his time. And that's why another joy of the Christian life is in knowing that what God promises, he often does for us when we reach the end of ourselves. If you think about it, why exactly did God wait till Sarah was in her 90s and Abraham was a century, year, a century old, he was 100 years old? Why did he do that? Because he wants to show us that often the way that he comes through with his promises is when we exhaust ourselves trying to do it on our own. When we exhaust ourselves trying to help God out. When we finally come to the realization that when I take this path or that path and I exert myself in this way or I try to do it in this way when I have all these anxieties and worries because I'm trying to take life into my hands and, and all those things finally burn out and fizzle out and we're at the end of ourselves and we finally cry out to God and we say, God, I can't do it. God, you must do it. God, I'm trusting in you. That's when God comes through. You see, we're so prideful and independent. We want to do things in our own strength and power. But then God doesn't get the glory and we don't get the joy. This is why God waited until Abraham and Sarah were so old. And this is often why he waits in our lives 
till we've come to the end of ourselves. To show that joy comes not from self-reliance, but dependence upon him. Well, let's look at that second point, household conflict. Verses 8 through 13, where we read, The child grew and was weaned. This is probably when Isaac was about two to four years old. On the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. This episode occurs a few unspecified years later at the time when Isaac was weaned. It was a gift from God that Sarah could give birth, but it was also a gift that she could nurse Isaac. And in order to celebrate that, Isaac had made it through those tough few years at the beginning of any baby's life, uh, especially at that time in the ancient Near East when the mortality rates for infants would have probably been very high. Abraham threw a feast. And we read at this feast, Sarah saw that the son from Hagar, the Egyptian, uh, mocked. And it doesn't say specifically what he was mocking, but the, uh, the intention that we can gather from this is that Ishmael um, is mocking the little boy, Isaac. These verses continue to elaborate on the tensions and friction that already existed between Sarah and Hagar, which we saw back in Genesis 16. Sarah observes at this feast Ishmael mocking, presumably, the little toddler age, Isaac. And this angered her, and so she took advantage of the opportunity to get rid of her rival, Hagar, and the older boy, a contender to the inheritance of Isaac, and called on Abraham to send them away. And Abraham, of course, is torn over this. We read, after Sarah said this, that the matter distressed Abraham greatly because this is his son. He recognizes Ishmael as his son, and he cares for him. So God actually has to intervene. God came in verse 12 and said to him, Do not be distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I'll make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Uh, God promises and comforts Abraham by saying that um, Hagar and Ishmael need to be separated from the family, but he's going to make Ishmael a great nation as well because for his sake. Uh, yet his motives are, are different than Sarah's. You get the idea that Sarah simply wants them gone out of spite or jealousy. God wants them separated from the covenant community because he's going to bring the promised Savior through Isaac. Still, God comforts Abraham with once again the confirmation that it's through Isaac the covenant will be continued and that Ishmael will be looked after and cared for in his own way become a nation as well. And this shows that the blessing comes not just to the so-called elect line, but also to other nations, primarily in relationship to the covenant people. You'll notice in this passage that the, uh, the continuing theme of laughter uh, moves forward. When in Genesis 18, God came to uh, Abraham and visited with him, and God told Abraham that his son would be called Isaac, largely because God overheard uh, Sarah laughing about the fact that she would have a baby. And uh, she denied that she laughed, but, you know, you can't, uh, you can't deny uh, what happens here. And then earlier in Genesis chapter 21, uh, we reread uh, that uh, Abraham names the son Isaac. Isaac means he laughs. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. This laughter is a joyful laughter. It's a laughter different than the derisive laughter that she had of, of before, the, the laughter of unbelief. 
Um, and she says, everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Um, and so then we read, though, in, uh, in verse 9, that Hagar, the, Egypt, the, the son Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham, was mocking. This is the same root word for laughter. Now, many of you have probably heard the phrase, I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you. Now, often this is used as a lie to cover up the fact that they are actually laughing at you and they don't want you to feel bad. So they're like, ha, 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 well, I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you. Well, Sarah says, when everyone hears about this, they're going to laugh with me. They're going to, they're going to join in the joyous laughter with me that God fulfills his promises, that God keeps his promises of God's covenant, the joyous laughter of God's covenant. Well, Ishmael's laughter here is not that laughter. It's a laughing at you, not with you. It's a laughing at you, not with you. So there's two kinds of laughter in this passage. The first is laughter of joy at the incredible and miraculous gift of a child. Sarah's laughter of joy replaces her early laughter of incredulity. And her laugh of unbelief is still different than Ishmael's mocking laughter. For when he mocked Isaac, he didn't realize he was mocking God. Since God, since Isaac is the child of the promise. Galatians chapter 6 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. If you read in the book of Proverbs, fools are often described in the book of Proverbs as wicked and godless. But the worst of them all is the mocker. Because he not only acts without wisdom, but openly ridicules the godly righteous person. He mocks those who try to point him in the right direction, along the right path. He laughs at them. Ha! You fool who believe in God and all those fairy tales in the Bible. The psalmist then opens the book of Psalms with the advice in Psalm 1. Sit not in the company of mockers. And when we push forward into the New Testament, we find... Christ, when he comes, is mocked, not only during his life, but especially at the cross. And Peter warns in 2 Peter that in the last days there will be scoffers, there will be mockers who will ridicule the idea of the return of the Lord to judge the living and the dead. Therefore, we should not be surprised as Christians if we are mocked by those who dismiss or hate God. Our reaction should not be hate or mocking back. Rather, we should strive to be like Jesus who, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. Don't laugh mockingly at the promises of God and the covenant of God like Ishmael did. Laugh with joy. at the gift of God's covenant and promise, like Sarah did. Final point, Hagar and Ishmael exiled. And so, once God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, listen to your wife. And, and all the women here say, amen, right? Yeah, listen to your wife. It's okay, do what she says. 
Um, this is what happens. Early the next morning, Abraham gives them, Hagar and Ishmael, some supplies, and he sends them on their way. He sent her off. This language in verse 14, uh, he sent them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. Is later language used elsewhere to describe a legal divorce, therefore severing any kind of legal obligations that he had toward them. They are free, but they had no basis to claim any inheritance. Um, and this is, uh, there's no, con- I'm not condoning this kind of behavior, but at that time, Hagar is a slave, and the child is the child of a slave. And so what Abraham does is says, you're no longer my slave. I free you. But because I give you your freedom, I now have no, no longer have any obligation to you, and the child which I have with you no longer has any claim to the inheritance. So Abraham provides them with food and water, but it's not long before we're reading that she's somehow gotten lost wandering in this desert of Beersheba. Uh, the supplies have run low, and they're both at risk of dying. And so she took the boy and placed him somewhere and then went about a bow shot away because she anticipated the end and did, and did not want to see him die. Um, they're, they're, we're not really sure how old Ishmael is at this time, but he's probably uh, 13, 14, something like that. And just like in Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord appears and he responds to the cries of Ishmael and encourages Hagar that their journey is going to continue because there's a promise that is given to them that he will be made into a great nation. And then he opens her eyes to show her a well of life-giving water. And the concluding verse informs us that God was with Ishmael as he grew up. He became a well-known archer living in the desert of Paran and married an Egyptian woman. Remember, most likely Hagar is, or she is from Egypt, a slave woman that um, Abraham probably got when he was down in Egypt in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, so we then don't actually hear much about the Ishmaelites in the biblical narrative, besides the fact that they are known later as Bedouins who travel the desert and are the ones who are going by in a train uh, as Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery later um, in the book of Genesis. There's a couple of applications that we can pull from this particular section of our passage tonight. The first um, may not be as easily seen at, at first, but I, I'd, like to, I'd like to bring it forward so you can look at it. In an essay on children in the book of Genesis, T.E. Freitheim draws the reader's attention to God's care of Ishmael who was, in the end, unchosen and neglected by his father. The story also expresses, just as it did in Genesis 16, God's care for Hagar, the abused wife of Abraham, who only married Abraham on the insistence of her owner, Sarah. I mean, you've got to have a little bit of sympathy for Hagar. Sarah is the one that comes to Abraham and says, Why don't you uh, marry my uh, maidservant, Hagar, and then we can have a child to her, and that, that can be your, um, your descendant. And so Abraham says, okay, okay, I'm going to listen to my wife. I'll listen to her. I'll do what my wife says. That, that time it got him into trouble, okay? Um, so you, maybe not always listen to your wife. That's all I'll say at that point, okay? And then afterwards, Sarah gets jealous and upset and, uh, because Hagar has a child and and, uh, and, and so Sarah starts mistreating Hagar, and Hagar gets so upset that she tries to run away. She's pregnant, and she tries to run, run away. Um, and God tells her to go back. And then finally he goes back, and then finally God 
gives Sarah a child, and then after this, Sarah is filled with jealousy again and threatened by the presence of Hagar and Ishmael, and she tells her husband, get rid of those people, get them out of here. And so you've got to feel bad for, for Hagar in this situation as well. And, but for all practical purposes, Ishmael was a child without a father, but God cared for him. God cared for him. Verse 20 is astounding. God was with the boy as he grew up. Freyheim suggests that this text about Ishmael in Genesis is a lens through which to read the many references to orphans and other underprivileged children in the Old Testament, for his is the first such biblical individual. The life of an orphan or a widow was a life of suffering, one where they were exposed with no protection. There was no societal safety net, no systems of care for those in need. And the Bible tells us that God is a God who cares for the needy, the suffering, the widow, and the orphans. To list the many scriptures, passages in the Old Testament to speak of this would take me too long. It's all over the prophets. It's all over the Psalms. It's all over the Bible. But just let me add this one from the New Testament so we can be sure uh, that this is something that expresses not only uh, the God of the Old Testament, but the God of the New Testament, which are the same God, but also an element of what it means to live in accordance with this God, to live our lives to glorify God. James chapter 1, verse 27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Because this truth expresses the very heart of God, it should be clear that it should also be reflected in the body of Christ. How are we as a church embodying the heart of God in our care and concern for widows and orphans? Now, this doesn't mean that we have to adapt, adopt personally, but we can support adoption centers. We can support foster care systems. We can do a myriad of things in our community to express the heart of God and His care and concern for those who are most at risk in our society. God cared for this neglected son, fatherless. He was with the boy as he grew up. But there's another application to this last part of the passage. The pain of a life of faith comes from separating from that which we do in our own power. There's joy in the life of faith, right? A myriad of joys. The, the, the joy expressed in this passage is the joy of the promise-keeping God and the giving of the child, Isaac. But there's also pain. Um, in Galatians chapter 4, we read the way that Paul understands this passage from a, uh, a certain perspective, right? And Paul, in Galatians chapter 4, says it this way. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, Hagar, and the other by the free woman, Sarah. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, Paul says. For the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. 
because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren women, who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. What is that? By the mocking that he did, right? It's in the same way now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So let me try to explain what Paul is saying here in a figurative sense about this particular uh, interaction between Sarah and Hagar and their corresponding sons. Tripper Longman puts it in this way in his, in his commentary. Paul's point is clear enough. He uses the child of Hagar, the slave woman, to represent those who relate to God through the law. Hagar represents the Sinaitic or the Mosaic covenant of law. And those who use law to enter into relationship with God are like Ishmael, never called by name but implied, who was the product of a wife of a slave. Ishmael was the product of a compelled marriage between Abraham and Hagar. On the other hand, Sarah was a free woman who was married to Abraham and her child Isaac was a child of the promise. He, not Ishmael, was the fulfillment of God's promise that Abraham would have descendants. The child of the slave woman did not have a secure relationship with his father Abraham. Indeed, he and his mother were ultimately expelled from the household. They were expelled because Ishmael made a mistake by laughing at Isaac and he was not forgiven. So those who try to relate to God by the law do not have a stable relationship with him because they will be expelled when they violate the law. So what's the application to us then? Longman ends by saying this. Paul's message to us is clear. Be like the child of the free woman, Sarah, not the slave woman, Hagar. Realize your relationship is that of a son to a father whose love is not based on performance, but on grace. And this is what I'm trying to point out when I say that the pain or the suffering in the Christian life and the life of faith comes often from separating from that which we do in our own power. There will always be conflict between what I can do in my own power and what only God can do. The only way to resolve this conflict is to put away that which I can do in my own power. Let me put it another way. There will always be conflict between my flesh, what I do in my own power, and, and, and in the life of Abraham, that's represented, represented by his son Ishmael. That's what Abraham did by his own power, by his own work. He sought to have a relationship with God in accordance with the law by his own doing. Do you, want to, do you understand what I'm saying? But there's always going to be a conflict between what we do by our own flesh, what we can do in our own power, and by the Spirit, what only God can do. And the only way to resolve this conflict is to obediently put to death the deeds of the flesh, to put off the deeds of the flesh. And in a figurative sense, this is what Abraham is doing when he sends his son and Hagar away. He's putting off the deeds of the flesh. He's saying, I'm no longer going to live in accordance with God in a way, manner uh, of the law. And when we obey, God graciously softens the pain of parting with the old life. That's often where the pain in the Christian, the suffering in the Christian life comes from, is the putting to death of the flesh 
is the, the suffering that comes from putting to death the old man, the old person, continuously in our lives, giving up those things which cling to us, which we feel that we can find joy and happiness and satisfaction in, but only bring pain and suffering and hardship. And God, in, in hardships and difficulties, causes us by his grace in us and his power in us to get rid of these things. And often the way that he helps us to get rid of these things is to put us through hardships and suffering and experiences that remind us that God is all that we want. God is all that we need. Jesus Christ is all that we need. We don't need anything else. The pain of a life of faith comes from separating from that which we do in our own power. What are those things in your life that you're seeking to do by your own power? That you're seeking to bring into your control and to produce by your own will and by your own exertion when you know that it is meant to be only what God can do. You need to think about that. You need to think about that and you need to ask God to take that from you. Even though it may be painful to take that from you so that you can experience more of the joy of seeing God do only what he can do. You see, the life of faith yields great joy but the path is often through great pain. Some of you may be going through painful trials. You may be confused and disappointed and grieving. You didn't expect the Christian life to be like this. You didn't expect the Christian life to be a life of joy when you receive promises from God and a life of suffering when you have to give up things. God may or may not let you understand why he's doing what he's doing, but he does want you to submit obediently to his pruning process and to trust him that by yielding to the pain, you'll ultimately experience the joy of obtaining that which only God can do with your life. You see, in the giving of a son, we see that the path of faith brings great joy, but in the losing of a son, in the taking of a son, we see that the life of faith also brings great pain. But I want you to know that that corresponding experience of joy and pain, it's only something that we wrestle with and deal with in this lifetime. In this lifetime, we have that wrestling with that correspondence between the joy and the pain that we experience. But one day, one day that will all give way to an eternal joy, an everlasting joy. A joy in which we will look back upon the pain and the suffering that we may have experienced in this life and understand why those things happened, why God brought those things into our life. And we will see the weight of glory that those very things produce. When Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. And when he ushers us and all of his other chosen ones into the new heavens and the new earth. In our resurrection bodies where we get to experience eternal joy with him forever. So pray. Hold on. Hold on as we experience joy and pain often at the same time in the Christian life. Because we know one day that will give way. And the suffering will be over. And the joy will never end.
Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word. Thank you that you do bring so much joy to our lives, but you also bring um, trials and testing and suffering. And you do this all for your glory and for our good. And so, Heavenly Father, we trust you. We trust that you are a promise-keeping God, that all the promises that you have given us find their yes and their amen in Jesus. We pray that we would cling to them, Lord. We pray that we would always believe and listen to uh, all that your word says and trust in it. Uh, we pray, Heavenly Father, uh, that we would wait and be patient uh, because we know that the promises you give to us, you answer in your time, not our time. And we pray, Heavenly Father, uh, that we would uh, be brought to the end of ourselves if we need to so that we would know uh, the joy that comes from seeing you do what only you can do. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we, in accordance with the covenant of God, and to, in accordance with your covenant, would have joyous laughter and not mocking laughter about your promises. And that we would be able to live underneath those who mock us in a way that uh, does not mock back, but, um, Lord, trust you who, who judges justly. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would have a Christian life that is concerned about those um, who are neglected and unchosen, who are at risk like uh, orphans and widows. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that um, we would uh, be separated from that which we seek to do in our own power, um, that we would put to death the deeds of the flesh, and uh, we would live in accordance and keep in step with the Spirit. We ask all these things and pray that you'd answer them for the sake of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?